You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hey, this is Lenny Goldberg, and thank you for joining me. We had a huge tragedy last week when 21 IDF soldiers were killed when they were laying explosives in order to blow up buildings. What they do is they have these mines and they put them in these buildings. And when they were laying them in the buildings, the Arabs launched this rocket-propelled grenade and that triggered the explosives that they were laying. And that's what led to the tragedy. And so you can ask, why were they planting these mines in the buildings? Why not just blow up the building from the air and then you don't have to send soldiers inside the buildings and endanger them? I don't think that this time it has anything to do with humanitarian considerations or some political judgment not to kill innocent Arab civilians. I think that this time it really is a matter of economics. We probably don't have enough missiles to keep dropping out of airplanes. It's not like there's an endless supply and we need it for our fighting in the north. So we use these Israeli manufactured mines because they're cheaper. Out of the 21 soldiers, three of them were related to people here in Tapuach, where I live. One was the son of a man who lives here. And another soldier, his name was Yuval Lopez. He lived in my village in Kvartapuach in Samaria. And he's a Jew from Peru. And his wife named Sigalit had a couple of kids he leaves behind. And the Peruvian community is really special. We're talking about converts to Judaism. They originally settled in the settlement of Alan Moray, which isn't far from here. They could have settled in Tel Aviv or Haifa. No, they wanted to be in Judea and Samaria. And many years ago, when I was head of the Klita in Kratapur, I was head of the uh, absorption of families, you know, bringing families to the settlement, I started to recruit some of these Peruvians to come to live in Tapuach. I tried to pry a couple of them away from the settlement in Alan Moray and bring them to Tapuach because our settlement here in Tapuach, we were having trouble drawing new families. We're talking the years 1992, 1993. We had a reputation as a settlement where a group of Yemenites were constantly feuding with one another. It's originally a Yemenite yeshuv here. And plus, we were the crazy Kahanists that came in later on and it created an environment that deterred new families from joining us, especially when you're getting bad press. And so I had to be creative and I went to the nearby settlement of Alan Moray and I convinced some of the really good families to migrate to our village in Tapuach. And the Peruvians, they really are a very humble and loyal community. Just like this soldier who fell, Yuva Lopez, went about his business very professionally, quietly, leading by example. He didn't have to go to Gaza either. He volunteered for it. And staying on the subject of the war, something has to be said that this campaign, the campaign to bring them home, to release the hostages at all costs, well, that's really a cover to stop the war. That's a cover for saying we want a ceasefire and we want a two-state solution while we're at it. Those who run around with that message, whether they know it or not, they are siding with the enemy because what it does is it takes our eye off the ball. Instead of our priority to destroy the enemy, we make the war about rescuing hostages. And that's part of the reason soldiers are dying because our focus is wrong. Our eye is off the ball. If our number one priority is to rescue the hostages and not wipe out the Hamas, well, then that deters us from blowing up or flooding the tunnels to the extent that we should. And you see how the hostages are being used as chips to force us to strike some kind of deal with the Hamas.
That's what it's all about. Here, this is yesterday's headline. American-led negotiators are edging closer to an agreement in which Israel would suspend its war in Gaza for about two months in exchange for the release of more than 100 hostages still held by Gaza. It is a deal that could be sealed in the next two weeks. Could you imagine a two-month break in the war? You know how many Israeli soldiers are going to be killed because of that? Because we allow them to regroup and reorganize and rebuild? Now, we all know that there are outside groups behind this campaign. Foreign powers, liberals in America, whose aspiration is for a two-state solution. And as part of this campaign to bring them home, there's this YouTube video going around. I mean, it's an unbelievable production. A project called the Homeland Concert, all produced for the purpose of returning the hostages. And you have the participation of a thousand musicians and singers from all over Israel. And they play this song in the Kisaria Amphitheater. And it's a huge production. You can find it on YouTube very easily. It's got lots of views already. And they sing... So that's the Israeli version of We Are The World. You got like 58 drummers, 200 violinists. I mean, it's unbelievable production. And what they're singing in this song is Habaita, bring them home, Habaita, Habaita, bring them home. And what I'm asking is, what do they want? I mean, what's their message? I get it, you want them home. Can you say anything about the Hamas Nazis who did this in the first place? What they do is they make it a personal thing. It's a personal thing. It's not a national issue anymore. It's all about individuals. It's not the Jews versus the Arabs or the Jews versus the Hamas. No, it's an issue of individual people who have been captured. We have to save them. That's what this was all about, right? There's no real message behind this. Now, if you sang a song about vengeance, imagine a thousand musicians singing that Dove Shuren song about vengeance against the Philistines. Now, that would be a worthy message at least. And right from the beginning of this war, Jonathan Pollard, he talked about this. He saw it coming that rescuing the hostages would become the main narrative of the war. And he warned against it in a very, very uh, clear way because he knew that that would hinder the war effort. And I want to repeat what I played several months ago, what Jonathan Pollard said about making this war about the rescue of the hostages and not about wiping out the Hamas. When we declared war, the first thing that the government should have done was declare a state of national emergency and told all of the hostage families, you will keep your mouths shut or we will shut them for you. You will not interfere in our management of this war. You will not be used by the international community or by our own leftists who managed the Shalit deal as a weapon against us. And if that means imprisoning to silence certain members of the hostage families, then so be it. It's We're in a state of war. I was dead set against turning all these posters out with kidnapped with all these pictures of these poor people that were kidnapped. Why? Because each one of them was a poison dart and our ability to wage total war against our enemies. That was Jonathan Pollard being interviewed by Rabbi Bar Chaim at Machon Shiloh. And a couple months ago, we said this warning 
about what we see today, that the hostages will be used as pawns to force a ceasefire, which is basically a declaration of defeat on our part. And then you have the approach of Hamizrochnikim, the religious Zionists, the ones who really do care what's going on. I'm talking about the Mizrahi movement, the OU. And I have in front of me the publication they put out for the Shabbat, HaMizrahi. And the whole publication is about the war and all kinds of inspirational stories about soldiers, about regular citizens who died fighting the Arabs on that day of October 7th. But the general approach, it's so, I don't know the word, it's parv. It's just, for lack of a better word, wimpy. There's no fire, there's no zealotry. The front page headline, from terror to tkuma, from terror to revival. And that's the theme of the entire publication. Another headline, rising up from falling. But nothing about the enemy who did this to us in the first place. I mean, how do we get here? It tells us nothing about what the Arabs did to us and what should be done to them to avoid another catastrophe. This didn't have to happen. Well, actually, they do have an idea. There's an ad in this Mizrahi publication, and it says like this. They murdered 1,200 Kedoshim, 1,200 martyrs they murdered. We will plant 12,000 trees and create new life. This Tubishvat joined people worldwide. So that's the answer of Mizrahi to the massacre, to plant trees. That's the answer. They killed 1,200 Jews. We're going to plant 12,000 trees. Yeah, we're going to show them. I mean, this whole thing really reminds me of a classic article Rabbi Kahana wrote back in 1989. And the background of the article is that the Arabs that year had burned forests and forests of trees that were planted by the Jewish National Fund, the JNF, Karen Kermit Israel. And as a response to that, the Jewish National Fund, what they did is they made an ad campaign. And in the campaign, they talked about the Arabs burning the trees that year, a whole bunch of trees. And now we're going to plant 10 times more trees than they burned. And so Rabbi Kahana wrote a very humorous piece on this. And it's very sarcastic. I mean, he writes it as if he's a little nebishy kid who had his trees burned down. So that's the tone of the article. And so I'm going to read this article now. And it's called, They Burn My Trees. They Burn My Trees. Okay, this is how it goes. I was depressed yesterday. Very, very sad. For I knew that they had burned my trees. As a child... I had saved my money so carefully so that I could buy those trees and know that they were planted and now they are burned. They must be burned. It is not logical that a million trees would be burned and none of mine among them. No, they are burned. Every week I would come to school and bring a nickel and with that nickel I would buy a special stamp, a Jewish national fund stamp and every week I would paste that stamp on the figure of a tree which was part of a JNF poster which had 20 leaves, so to speak. And every week, I would paste my stamp on a leaf. And at the end of 20 weeks, I had a tree, my tree. And I did this for years because I was a good boy, a good Jewish boy. And I bought many trees, my trees, my Jewish trees. And now they burn them, the Arabs and their intifada. Last year, within the sovereign state of Israel, that independent state, which makes me so proud, because it does not let anybody push it around, the Arabs burned 1.15 million trees. Some of my trees had to be among them. And I was sad. But then I saw an advertisement by the Jewish National Fund, which made me happy again. 
and may be proud to be a Jew, knowing that the JNF does not let anyone push it around. The JNF placed an ad that let the Arabs know that we are not the Jews of old. No one burns our trees. Well, not exactly. What the JNF said was that if the Arabs will burn our trees, we'll show them. We will plant even more trees than they burned. Anything that they can burn, we can plant better. If they burned 1.15 million, we will plant that much and 10 million more. Fully 11.5 million. In other words, 1.15 million trees were burned down and the JNF is going to plant now 10 times more, which is 11.5 million. Okay, the article continues. I was so happy. I ran to the bank to convert my money into nickels to buy leaves each week and plant new trees. I was so happy that the JNF had this wonderful idea until I met my neighbor. I never liked him. He is always cynical and a killjoy. When I told him of the brilliant Jewish National Fund idea to plant 10 times the amount of trees that the Arabs burned, this dour wet towel said, and what if they burn those? Will we plant 110 million trees next time? And why should Jews have to pay again and again for trees that Arabs burn? Why not throw them out of the country? Why do we allow them to stay in the country if we know that they will burn our forests? And why should I be a sucker to help pay the fat salaries of JNF executives who saw this as a golden opportunity for a Madison Avenue type campaign that will keep their salaries going? If the JNF wants money from me, let them demand that the Arabs be thrown out so that I will know that I pay for a Jewish tree once. I never liked my neighbor. He is so cynical. He is so logical. Okay, so that was my Tubishvat special. You know, when you think about it, what Rabbi Kahana wrote here in his sarcastic manner, this Mizrahi campaign is more ridiculous than the JNF campaign back then that the rabbi's mocking because at least the JNF, they're planting trees to replace trees that were burned by the Arabs. But this campaign... They want to plant trees to honor 1,200 murdered Jews? That's their campaign. 1,200 martyrs will plant 1,200 trees. What kind of equation is that? I want to now talk about the Torah Parshas we've been reading, which is all about the exodus from Egypt. We read this past Shabbat, the epic story of the splitting of the sea and the drowning of the Egyptians. And I want to bring a Midrash, which proves once again, like I did last week, to prove once again the concept of collective punishment and why this concept of purity of arms or what is called the moral conduct of war, it's a fraud and an obscene sacrifice of our soldiers. And this short Midrash in Midrash Tanchuma explains it all. Okay, so let's look at it. It says in the verses leading up to the splitting of the sea, what does it say? The Egyptians were chasing down the Israelites and it says in chapter 14 like this, and when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Paro and his officials, they changed their minds and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go. So what did he do? So he got his chariot ready and he took his army with him. And here's the key verse. And he took six hundreds of his best chariots and he went to chase down the Jews. Okay, so with those 600 chariots, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is going to pursue the Israelites. So the Midrash asks the following question. Where did the Egyptians get those 600 chariots? Where did they get the horses to pull those chariots? Weren't they wiped out during the plagues? In other words, whose beasts were drawing those chariots? If you say they belong to the Egyptians, 
Has it not already been said that during the plagues, the cattle of Egypt died? So we have a specific verses that the cattle of Egypt died. So these horses drawing the chariots didn't come from the Egyptians. If you should contend that they belong to Pharaoh, has it not already been written, quote, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon your cattle. That is, Pharaoh, he doesn't have any cattle either. If you should assert that they belong to the Jews, has it not already been written? Moses said to Paro, and we learned this last week, our cattle shall go with us. There shall not be a hoof left behind. So the Midrash is asking, where do these horses come from? The Egyptian horses died. The Paro's horses aren't around. The Jews took their cattle. So to whom did they belong? And here's the answer. They belong to the slaves of Paro who feared the word of the Lord. What's going on here? See, during the plague of Barad, the plague of hail, that was the seventh plague. If you pay attention, on that particular plague, there was an option. And it's the only plague you had this. That Hashem gave an option that those Egyptians who are Yered of Hashem, those who fear the Lord, they can bring their cattle inside so they won't die from the Barad. And so that's where the horses came from. It came from the good Egyptians, the Egyptians who feared the Lord and gave their cattle shelter. That's where it came from. And so the Midrash concludes like this. And hence we learn that even those who feared the word of the Lord were a stumbling block to Israel. Yeah, the good Egyptians were a stumbling block because Paro used their cattle to chase us down. And the Midrash concludes with the following. And from here we learn the best among the Egyptians have to be killed. The best among the serpents, one must crush its brain. Tov goyam arog, tov benachashim. That the best amongst the Egyptians have to be killed, even the best ones, and the best amongst the serpents, one must crush his head. And so there you go, the classic reason why collective punishment is very necessary in war, because even the best of them can be a hindrance to you. Well, now, what does it mean the best of the serpents, you have to crush their heads? Because it's the same idea. If you see a serpent, you don't know if he's poisonous or not. You don't take any chances. You don't take any chances. You don't ask him, hey, serpent, are you poisonous? You don't ask. You crush his head. And that's why it says the best amongst the Egyptians have to be killed. The best amongst serpents crush their brain. And that's the real case for collective punishment and indiscriminate bombing. Because even the best of the Gazans, if there are any, are a stumbling block for Israel. And that's why there are no innocents in war. Because again, war is a collective enterprise. It's a nation versus a nation. You don't start picking out individuals. So that's lesson number one from the splitting of the sea. And now we're going to bring lesson number two. And this happens right after that, as the Jews are being chased down by the Egyptians and they're standing at the Red Sea. What did they say as the Egyptians were approaching? This is what the verse says. And as Paro approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. And they were terrified. And they cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, was it because... There were no graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here to die in the desert. Why did you bring us out of Egypt in the first place? So this sounds something like out of a Jackie Mason routine. What, there weren't enough graves in Egypt? You had to bring us over here to die? And they continue, and they continue fetching. Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. That's what they say in verses 11 and 12 in chapter 14. Now the great commentator, the Ibn Ezra, he has a magnificent commentary on this. And he asked the following, why were the Jews so hysterical? I mean, why were they weeping and fetching? 
After all, we're talking about a camp of 600,000 men. That's how many Jews were there. 600,000 men. And how many Egyptians were there anyway? They had 600 chariots. We just read that verse, right? 600 chariots. The Jews totally outnumbered them. So why didn't they even consider maybe fighting for their lives and fighting for the lives of their children and not just crying? And so the commentator of the Ibn Ezra answers. He says, because the Egyptians had been masters over Israel for so long and the Jews were so used to being subjugated to their Egyptian masters. So how can they now raise their hand against their master? And so the Jews had a nefesh shvela, the Ibn Ezra says, a lowly soul. That is, they had a slave mentality. And that's why they didn't even think about fighting the Egyptians. So we're talking about the soul of a ghetto Jew. He's fearful. He's apprehensive. And that's the soul of the Jew in Israel today. Despite all the declarations of nefesh the omiyah, you used to hear about the new Hebrews and all that. No, no. We still have the soul of a slave, terrified of the Gentile, with all these complexes. And that's why, even though we know that the Arabs are savages and want to wipe us out, we don't do what has to be done because we're like that slave generation that came out of Egypt. Anyway, the Ibn Ezra continues. He says like this, and that is why the Jews had to wander around in the desert for 40 years. Why? In order that that generation die out. That is that slave generation of Egypt had to die out so that a new generation could arise, the generation that was born in the desert who didn't experience slavery and they had a nefesh kvoah, not a nefesh shvela, the opposite, a highly soul, a lofty soul. So this is an unbelievable thing that the Ibn Ezra says because it seemed to us, or we always thought that they wandered for 40 years in the desert because of the sin of the spies, which is going to happen much later on. But the Ibn Ezra is saying, this is already the sin of the spies. This generation was never going to go into the land of Canaan and conquer the Canaanites. It's just not the right material. And therefore, we had to wait for the next generation. And so, maybe that's what's going on today. You know, you see the young lions, the young generation fighting in Gaza. They got all the motivation. If it was up to them, they would just obliterate Gaza. They have no problem with that. They want so badly to decimate the enemy and finish them off. That's the newer generation. That's the generation we have now, the generation of the desert. But they're held back. By who? By the Otakakers, the slave mentality leaders, the grasshoppers, with the lowly soul, with the nefesh fela, the old guard. And these Otakakers, they have to be dislodged to make room for the new blood, who doesn't have the same complexes. So we can be encouraged by the fact that the soldiers, the, the rank and file, they want to win. And they don't want to leave Gaza until the job is completely done. Anything less than total decimation is unacceptable for most soldiers. They have no problem staying in Gaza, being away from their families even, for many away from their businesses. Their businesses are hurting because they've been away from it for so long. And there's something else very encouraging to show that the nation is healthy and does have a nefesh gvoa, a lofty soul. We've mentioned many times the sickness of allowing these hundreds of trucks per day with humanitarian aid to roll into Gaza. You know, it's like delivering the Nazis more gas so they can continue gassing us in the gas chambers. Anyway, we've seen this past week that crowds of Israelis from all walks of life are gathering to stop these trucks, these aid trucks from entering Gaza at the Karam Abu Salem border. And some of the protesters, they include family members of captives that are held by the Hamas. And this is a great development. It's something totally organic. 
And Rabbi Dov Lior, who was the rabbi of Kirit Arba, he gave a halachic psak the other day, halachic ruling, that one is allowed to participate in blocking these trucks, even if it means one has to violate Shabbat. <laughs> it's bikuch nefesh, it's saving lives. You're allowed to violate Shabbat to go and block these trucks in Aza. And so that's the formula. If anything good is going to happen, if there's going to be a big change in Israel, it's going to happen that way. It's going to be organic from the people up, from the regular folks. The changes are going to come about because some vote in the Knesset. It's going to be in spite of the Knesset, not because of the Knesset. You know, one of the reasons we don't do what has to be done, the major reason is this need for the world to love us. And we're always afraid that the world's going to condemn us. And I remember right after the massacre, I happened to be in the States just when it happened on October 7th. I flew that night. I had a flight and LL kept the flights going. So I had to fly that night. So I was there right after the massacre and I'm watching the news and I see all the news stations, even CNN. Oh, they're so sorry for what happened. And Biden gives a nice speech and he mentions Gold of the Mayor and everybody's getting warm and fuzzy about it. I mean, you really felt like the world was behind this. Then, of course... When Israel started to bomb Aza, the narrative quickly changes and Israel was getting trashed and condemned once again. So I'm going to play for you a couple of minutes of a really old speech Rabbi Kahana gives back in 1970. He's speaking at UCLA in California and he talks about this same exact phenomenon. And just to give some background to something he uh, refers to, in 1968, you know, two years before he gave this speech, the PLO attacked a plane that was departing from Athens and an Israeli passenger was murdered. So as payback, Israel launched an attack on the Beirut airport, destroying 13 aircrafts. So those are two events he's going to refer to very quickly. So let's take a listen. It's time for Jews to stop worrying about what will non-Jews think. Because if that paralyzes the Jew into inaction on behalf of his brothers and his sisters, then respectability buries us. And it's time for us to stop worrying about winning the love of the world. We have a terrible need, a neurotic need to be loved and to have the sympathy of the world. The state of Israel, two years ago, learned an interesting lesson about world sympathy. How one wins it and how one loses it. Two years ago, Israel sent its commandos to violate international law. And to go to Beirut airport on a Saturday night to make Havdolah over 13 Arab airplanes. And that night, the state of Israel lost the sympathy of the world. 15 to nothing was the vote in the UN. You don't get better than that. The Pope bemoaned the fate of 13 airplanes. And Israel lost the sympathy of the world that it had gained with such great difficulty one week earlier at Athens airport when a Jew was killed. And so that for all those that have a need to be loved is the formula. That's the formula. If you really want to be loved, here it is. If a Jew is killed, you'll get sympathy. And if two Jews are killed, you'll get more sympathy. And if, please God, you work really hard and you hit the jackpot with six million, then a whole bag of goodies sympathy and plaques and monuments and eulogies and Kaddish and Yardsite and Yisker and Willie Brandt will go to Warsaw 
and kneel in front of a monument and cry for you. This is sympathy, and this is the price you pay for sympathy. That was Rabbi Kahana back in 1970 at UCLA. Imagine today, UCLA hosting Rabbi Kahana or any right-wing conservative speaker. Boy, times have changed. Or maybe UCLA is different than Berkeley. I don't know, but I know that if Ben Shapiro wants to speak in those places, he has to go with like 50 bodyguards. So we see how things have changed when it comes to freedom of speech that Rabbi Kahana was speaking in UCLA. On the other hand, nothing's changed when it comes to that galut mentality of the Jew. That nefesh shvela, that lowly soul, which makes him so apprehensive and afraid to win. And one last thing before signing off. I'm talking about problems in Israel all the time, but there's still no place I'd rather be. I would not want to be a Jew in America today. The writing is on the wall. Everyone knows America's done. Just the illegal immigration alone is destroying that country. But as obvious as it is, our capacity for self-deception or for deluding ourselves is so massive, we perceive what we want to perceive and we disregard what's actually happening around us because it's kind of obvious that America's crumbling and it's irreversible. It doesn't matter who wins the next elections. Even if Biden is out, it's too little too late. Yet the American Jew continues to root himself there. And we have this phenomenon of self-delusion with Pharaoh. Yeah, with Pharaoh. During the Exodus, very fascinating verse in chapter 10, verse 7. While Egypt is getting ravaged with the plagues, we have this great line. His servants come to him and they say, Don't you know that Egypt is lost? That's what they say. Now, the Ibn Ezra gives a great psychological interpretation of this. What do you mean, don't you know that Egypt is lost? So he adds just one word. Don't you want to know that Egypt is lost? You don't want to know, do you? He lives in delusions because he can't handle the facts. He can't come to terms with that. And so fellow Jew, don't be like Pharaoh. Don't delude yourself. Don't you know that America is lost? Or as the Ibn Ezra says, don't you want to know that it's lost? That's it for me today. And don't forget to tune into my Bible classes, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes. You can Google it. Or you can check out our new website, LennyGoldberg.com, LennyGoldberg.com. There you'll see my Bible podcasts and a whole bunch of other good things, including Rabbi Kahana books for sale. We're getting a little closer to Pesach, so you can order a Haggadah of the Jewish idea, an unbelievable Haggadah by Binyamin Zef Kahana. Or you can email me at LennyGoldberg40 at gmail.com, LennyGoldberg, the number 40 at gmail.com for questions and comments. And I'll be back next week, same time, same station. 